0: On tonight's show, we're talking about the two biggest stories in the world right now. The COVID pandemic, which is still very much going on. It might feel like it's over in this country, but it's not in much of the world. And we're gonna be talking about climate change, the the climate summit that Biden hosted where various world leaders came forward and, and, and put forward pledges for carbon reductions. People are calling it a turning point in the battle against climate change we'll be discussing whether that's all just hot air and the latest flame war between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. I'm joined all night by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy that our viewers this evening have made the choice they
1: have given that it's, it's a relatively nice evening. Uh, and, uh, you know, all those strange people who booked up the pubs are now gently, you know, receding out of the system. They're being flushed out and so the fact you've watched, you know, come to Navarra Media to watch us here discuss these hugely important stories, I think is a real testimony to your intelligence, character and uh,
0: political consistency. So thank you for joining us here on Navarro Media. To our viewers. I've been, I've, I've been nagging Aaron and saying you do not flatter our audience enough. Now, while in much of the West, it can feel as if the COVID pandemic is drawing to a close. On a global level, such complacency could not be less warranted according to john Hopkins University the current 7-day average for daily confirmed cases of coronavirus is in fact the highest it's been since the start of the pandemic so on April the 22nd the 7-day average for confirmed covid cases was 809,435 across the globe the previous peak was on January 11th so that's when we were having our peak in this country that was when the 7-day average was 740,000 new cases per day now this increase is being driven in particular by an incredibly serious outbreak that's happening in India right now I'm going to show you the daily confirmed cases by region again this is a seven day average to give you an idea of of where um, the current epidemic is in the world so on this graph um, you can see there India massive massive almost vertical spike um, which has been going on over the past few weeks to compare to the the other um, regions on there. North America, you can see since the peak in, in January, um, that has been declining considerably, mainly because of uh, a successful vaccine rollout in the USA. The European Union, um, again, it has come down slightly from the, the, the highest rates, um, but uh, it's not looking ideal there right now. But again, nowhere near um, India. In Europe, you've got a slow vaccine rollout, but nonetheless... Um, it is picking up pace, then South America is also where we're seeing um, a bit of a surge in cases that's driven by Brazil, not quite on the scale that we're currently seeing in India. But the big story actually in Brazil is that it's been sort of constant, you've had a a constant um, continuum of of high cases every day. But as I say, it's in India where it's really rocketed, the seven day average for daily confirmed cases has gone from 39,000 a month ago to 322,000 Um, Today, um, actually the 322,000, that's actually just the ones today. That's not the average. The previous record in the country was 93,000 daily cases, um, which was back in September. Now, this dramatic surge means India's hospitals are completely overwhelmed with many denied beds and with many hospitals suffering from acute oxygen shortages. Now, to get an idea of the human cost of all of this, I want to show you part of a BBC report from Delhi this week.
2: My husband's in a very bad state, let me get through, this woman says. She's been carrying him around for 10 hours. Many of these people won't survive the night. Sir, for one minute come and look at my mother, a man please. A doctor follows him to the ambulance and prepares to say the words, He's had to say over and over again in the past day alone. She's no more. Her family, among hundreds in India, denied even the chance of saving a loved one. Covid-19 has hit this country with a ferocity not seen before, but not unexpected either. This woman tries to revive her brother, who was losing consciousness. Balaji Tirupati, the father of two children, died minutes later. His family wanted their story to be heard. There's an acute shortage of oxygen too. Seema Devi died because the ambulance ran out of it. Some hospitals have just a few hours of supply left.
0: Really, really difficult scenes to watch there. I mean, it just seems absolutely terrible I'm um, in India right now it's important to mention as well that that film was from Delhi which is one of the parts of the countries with with the best hospital infrastructure so if you're out in rural areas it might be um, even more difficult than those scenes you're seeing there now to discuss the crisis unfolding in India and the ongoing pandemic across the world I'm joined by Deepti Gudasani a clinical epidemiologist at Queen Mary University thank you so much for for coming back on the show Deepti
3: thanks for having me
0: and we're going to talk about the causes of this new surge in one moment first of all um i know you have family in in india and connections there and i just wanted to you know if you could give us a sense of what your understanding is of what's going on um there right now
3: i mean the situation is horrific i mean i'm a medic myself i haven't seen patients for the last 10 years but i trained in india and a lot of my colleagues work in different parts of india my parents live in delhi um, and uh, you know they're surrounded by people with COVID in their own building. And, you know, as you saw, there are people dying outside hospitals, there isn't enough oxygen, there's no guarantee you can get healthcare anywhere. The situation is completely dire, there's no other way to put it.
0: What is your understanding of why we're seeing this extraordinary peak right now? I mean, I understand there's a new variant, which people think is yeah. both, you know, more contagious and potentially more deadly. Is it, is it mainly down to this new variant? Or are there other factors involved?
3: I think there are multiple factors. So, for example, we believe that about 50 to 60% of the population in Delhi had already been exposed to the virus. So if you do antibody testing on them, they had antibodies positive. So to see this level of a surge after that is, is quite something. It sort of reminds us of what happened in Manaus. So I think there's definitely a component of this new variant, which is potentially more transmissible, might escape immunity from previous variants as well. But the fact is that these rises in cases have been happening for about six weeks now in many regions and no action has been taken. So lockdown in Delhi, for example, was instituted just a few days ago and it was instituted for six days. In West Bengal, which was one of the major parts affected in the outbreak, there were election rallies with thousands of people gathering till Monday. And in Maharashtra, they had limited curbs or restrictions which weren't having any impact and lockdown was instituted I think just yesterday or day before. Um, So given the exponential rises we've seen for six weeks it's very hard to understand why action hasn't been taken because this is what happens to the pandemic if you just let it go and you don't take action and we know when we're seeing those you know almost vertical lines that you showed every single day makes a difference.
0: And what's your understanding of, of why that hasn't happened i mean i know you say it's it's difficult to understand it's difficult to explain but different explanations that you know that are plausible i suppose is that one you know it's been a long pandemic india doesn't have the capacity to provide the kind of social and economic support that we have in 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 this country so that the population just won't accept more lockdowns or is it the case that you've got a, a a leader a government who just don't really care about this who don't want to take covid seriously or or a bit of both
3: I think it would definitely be the latter. I mean, we had lockdowns in the past and lockdowns that were successful in reducing cases um, with, you know, a level of support for public. In some areas, it was much better than others, of course. Um, and the public were quite adherent with that. And, uh, you know, there was uh, quite, you know, good adherence to all those measures. So I think what's happening now is down to the government, to government policy. I mean, they seem to have prioritised politics, elections, and things like that over public health. And what what we're seeing now is devastation. And the sad part is we're not at the peak of this yet. The deaths we're seeing today are a reflection of cases about three weeks ago. And it's really terrifying to think of what's going to happen in the next three weeks when we're seeing hospitals already beyond capacity.
0: What could other countries do? Is there something that people could be doing to support India to say, look, Britain, we're through the worst, but India is about to have a terrible three weeks, a bit like the one we had in January, potentially worse. It's difficult to say. Um, What should the rest of the world be doing when they're they're looking on on a crisis like this?
3: I mean, it's a humanitarian crisis. There's shortages of drugs, there's shortages of beds, there's shortages of protective equipment for healthcare workers, there are shortages of oxygen. So I think anything that people can help with would be really helpful. You know, I've been looking at what charities to donate to, and what I'm hearing from within India is there's a national shortage, so there's nothing you can do. So I think the only thing that can help is that sort of humanitarian aid, but it needs to be urgent and you know even vaccines for example there aren't sufficient vaccines for the number of people who need to be vaccinated all of those things together i think the community needs to come together because it is a global pandemic and the scale of disaster is huge. And what's going to happen in the next three weeks is going to be worse than what's happening today. And the number of deaths in the cases that you outlined, although shocking, are huge underestimates of what's actually happening. If you look at the data from crematoriums, the deaths are being underestimated by about tenfold. So you can imagine when you're reporting 2,000 deaths, there might be up to 20,000 people dying, not necessarily just of COVID, but from other diseases because they can't get healthcare.
0: We've talked a lot about the unequal distribution of the vaccine around the world, how COVAX has fallen short. But India is actually an interesting case because, I mean, as far as I understood, they had the biggest vaccine capacity in the world to produce vaccines in, in places such as the Serum Institute. For some reason, the either the production or the rollout of the vaccines hasn't gone you know, quite as quickly as as one would have hoped. What's that down to? Is that Western governments being too cagey with their patents? Is that sort of mismanagement with distribution? Why, when they've got such a huge capacity in terms of vaccine production, are they not vaccinating people fast enough?
3: Well, I mean, they've vaccinated a lot of people. They've vaccinated 130 million people. So if you look at the number of people vaccinated, they're just behind the US. But of course, the population is huge. So that's just 9% of the population. And the Serum Institute is... um, you know, they're one of the big manufacturers of Covishield or AstraZeneca and exporting to the world. They've now stopped exports so that they can keep the vaccine within India because they need it. And I think uh, they're uh, pushing for a capacity of about 60 million a week, which is quite high, but, you know, it's not, it's a drop in an ocean in terms of what's actually needed because of the number of people who need vaccination at this point in time. And of course, you know, many of the vaccines, for example, are other vaccines are not available. They're not generic. Pfizer, for example, is now offering to provide uh, India vaccination at cost, but uh, we don't know what the cost will be. And, of course, there'll be problems with rollout because it requires, this, you know, a uh, deep freeze, which is not going to be available, particularly in the midst of this crisis. So I think, you know, countries really need to come together, and particularly countries that, you know, aren't facing this sort of a crisis at this point in time, maybe zero COVID zones, um, and think about, you know, what they can contribute to this, um, But of course, I mean, the thing is, even if you vaccinate uh, in huge numbers now, there's no way you can keep up with exponential spread and, you know, immunity will take time. So the thing to do now is actually a national lockdown, because there are many places where we're seeing exponential spread that's continuing, that is still not in restrictions and cases are still going up. That's the problem. I mean, even today, cases are going up. So when are we going to reach the peak of this pandemic? I don't know.
2: Mm,
0: I mean, really really horrible situation horrific situation on a global level do you think this might be one of the last major COVID spikes we see or do you think that there are other countries with lower levels of vaccinations where we might see similar spikes going on for for months or I mean heaven forbid but even years I mean how long do you think we're going to see this kind of humanitarian catastrophe move around the different countries who haven't been fully vaccinated yet
3: So I think as long as we allow the virus to adapt and evolve and allow transmission to continue, we're taking a huge gamble. I mean, every single new variant that evolves... Um, presents a huge risk. We don't know what it can do. Like the, the so-called Kent variant change the shape of the, the Western pandemic, I think, in the UK, Europe, and in the US. And we're seeing waves everywhere now related to this. So every single variant of concern has a potential to do that. And, you know, it's not just about vaccination. What if you have a variant that can escape vaccines? You know, we have variants now that are potentially evading immunity. Manaus had a population with an infection exposure of about 76% before they started seeing the massive surge. Delhi had uh, probably an infection rate of 60% or so before they started seeing that surge. How do you know that's not going to happen even with vaccination if we allow variants to evolve? So I don't think we're anywhere near the end of this. And the reason for that is not because we are helpless and this virus is intelligent, (laughs) but it's because we haven't used the agency that we have to take the actions to prevent this. This was entirely preventable but we haven't taken the actions because we've minimized the risk posed by this virus right from the beginning here and we've never understood it. While other countries that understood the risk posed by it and took the actions, are now not in this situation at all. You know they are having a normal life, normal society, except they have border restrictions, which I think is a small price to pay for the lack of devastation we are seeing across the world. Pop up in different parts. I mean, we hear about new variants everywhere. We knew about new variant now in Tanzania. We don't know what that means. There variants in in parts of the US. We don't know what that they mean you know so we might see these surges come up before we understand what these variants mean but it's very likely virus evolution is happening all over the world and we don't know where the next variant is going to pop up simply because we're not surveilling at this point in time and it takes a few weeks to months for the effects to be fully apparent.
0: Mm. I mean my understanding is that many of the vaccines do seem fairly protective against most of the variants right you know especially the Pfizer the mRNA ones do seem to to be fairly effective i mean from my perspective it seems more like this is a problem of not enough people being vaccinated around the world and once we vaccinate everyone to the same extent that israel's vaccinated for example then we will start to see the end of end of the pandemic
3: Yeah, so most vaccines are effective against veins. Vaccine efficacy is reduced against some veins, particularly the South Africa vein, for example, with AstraZeneca. And when I say it's reduced, you know, there are different layers of vaccine efficacy. There's effectiveness against severe disease, which protects people, which is really, really important. But there's also uh, reduction in infection transmission, which is sadly the first thing to go when effectiveness reduces. And that has an impact on population transmission. Um, so population transmission can rise to high levels if a variant evades uh, vaccine effectiveness at that level, infection, even though you're protected against severe disease. So that's why variants are important. Even if individuals are protected, a population might not be.
0: Deepthi Gudasani, thank you so much for for joining us this evening. Insightful as ever. And I'm sure we'll be speaking to you soon.
3: Thank you.
0: Next story. Boris Johnson is currently under fire due to leaked texts sent between himself and British businessman James Dyson. In the text, Johnson said he could fix a tax issue which Dyson claimed was a barrier to his firm entering the ventilator challenge during Britain's first wave of the pandemic. Now, Boris Johnson defended the texts. He said he was just doing everything in his power to to get ventilators out in, in the middle of a pandemic. But it's difficult for them because obviously, it seems at this point in time, like basically, we have government by WhatsApp. If, if you're friends with the government, you can get stuff done. If you're not, you're going to struggle. Anyway, um, because this story was, this, this Dyson story was, was feeding into this narrative of sleaze. Um, many people, um, believe the Downing Street operation did something we call a dead cat strategy. That's throwing a different dramatic revelation on the table so that newspapers talk about something else. And on Thursday night, they made the dramatic decision to point the finger at Dominic Cummings for making these leaks, for leaking the Dyson text. So they're saying, let's stop focusing on the contents of these leaks and start focusing on who's leaked them. And they said, it's all Dominic Cummings. They said Dominic Cummings had not only leaked the text with Dyson, but had also been the one to leak details of the October lockdown to Britain's newspapers. If this was a dead cat strategy, if the aim was to distract from awkward issues about cronyism or sleaze, It worked. In the short term, at least, it worked. So on the the front page of the Daily Telegraph, coming accused of leaking number 10 texts. The Sun has gone for Boris Dom's a text maniac. And the Times went for Cummings is accused of leaking PM's texts. So they've completely um, shifted the news narrative, not to be about sleaze, but to be about personality, and especially Dominic Cummings, someone the press loves to talk about. So in the short term, successful. However, in the medium term, potentially starting a war with Dominic Cummings, someone who likes a battle and also has quite a lot of dirt on Boris Johnson, wasn't necessarily a great idea. So Dominic Cummings today wrote a blog, published a blog, um, responding to the allegations. We're going to go through some of the claims he makes now. He sort of rebuts the allegations one by one. So first of all, on the Dyson texts, he says. So this is the text between Boris Johnson and James Dyson. I do have some WhatsApp messages between the PM Dyson forwarded to me by the PM. I have not found the ones that were leaked to Laura Koonsberg on my phone, nor am I aware of being sent them last year. I was not directly or indirectly a or the source for the BBC Coonsberg story on the PM Dyson text. Um, Later on in that section, he writes, I am happy to meet with the cabinet secretary and for him to search my phone for Dyson messages. If the PM did send them to me as he is claiming, then he will be able to show the cabinet secretary on his phone when they were sent to me. It will therefore be easy to establish, at least if I was ever sent these messages. So Dominic Cummings sounds quite confident that he can clear his name. Um, on on the issue of the Dyson texts. That would potentially be embarrassing for the PM because they'd brief something false. I mean, it'd be survivable, wouldn't it? There was a rebuttal to a second point, though, which could be pretty damaging for Boris Johnson, I think. This was the one, uh, the claim that the Downing Street source um, made last night to so many newspapers, that Dominic Cummings was not only the source of these Dyson Boris Johnson texts, but also the source of a leak in October about a lockdown. So you might remember the, the situation. It was fairly dramatic. The government looked pretty weak and in crisis because they had a meeting about a lockdown. It got briefed to the papers instead of being told to us by the politicians. Everyone was pretty angry. Now, there was at the time an inquiry into this leak, and it was led by the cabinet secretary. So he's kind of the top um, civil servant in government. And Cummings is saying, look, this wasn't me because an inquiry was launched by the cabinet secretary and he cleared me. Not only did he clear me, you were in the meeting. And in the meeting where we were in about that inquiry with the top civil servant, he said, it wasn't me, Dominic Cummings. It was actually Henry Newman. Now, Henry Newman, you might not have heard of him. He's a different advisor to to Boris Johnson. So someone else who works in number 10. What happens next is interesting, um, because Cummings writes um, that after Johnson was told this news, he said, The PM was very upset about this. He said to me afterwards, if Newman is confirmed as the leaker, then I will have to fire him. And this will cause me very serious problems with Carrie as their best friends. Perhaps we could get the cabinet secretary to stop the leak inquiry. So Boris Johnson essentially saying look, there's an official investigation going on by a politically neutral civil servant into a matter of government. It's quite important. Who's leaking COVID policy before it's being delivered through the proper public health channels. And he's saying, oh, oh, uh, if we point the finger at that guy, it will upset my girlfriend. So therefore, let's quash the whole thing. Now, you might say, look, this is just one, one person's word against another. Should we believe Dominic Cummings? Here? He's obviously got an axe to grind. Let's go to what's next in, in the blog. Dominic Cummings writes, I told him that this was mad and totally unethical, that he had ordered the inquiry himself and authorised the cabinet secretary to use more invasive methods than are usually applied to leak inquiries because of the seriousness of the leak. I told him that he could not possibly cancel an inquiry about a leak that affected millions of people just because it might implicate his girlfriend's friends. I refused to try to persuade the cabinet secretary to stop the inquiry. And instead, I encouraged the cabinet secretary to conduct the inquiry without any concern for political ramifications. I told the cabinet secretary that I would support him regardless of where the inquiry led. I warned some officials that the PM was thinking about cancelling the inquiry. They would give evidence to this effect under oath to any inquiry. I also have WhatsApp messages with very senior officials about this matter, which are definitive. So there he's saying he's got this juicy claim that Boris Johnson tried to quash a leak inquiry because it was pointing to a friend of his girlfriend and saying, I've got the WhatsApp messages to prove it. He's saying I've got the evidence. And he's constantly sort of inferring um, throughout this blog that he will reveal it when he gives evidence before MPs. Um, There's one more revelation we're going to go to in a moment. First of all, Aaron, um, what do you make of this blog? Do you think that Boris Johnson has potentially made a mistake by going to war with his ex-advisor?
1: It's such a tough one, Michael, because on face value, you know, Boris Johnson versus Dominic Cummings, neither comes with, you know, a strong kind of character references. And they also have a history of of lying at the very highest level. Dominic Cummings, most memorably, uh, around a year ago um, in regards to Barnard Castle and, and so on and so forth. So what I find fascinating for me, and maybe, I mean, you're going to peel this back and go to, I think, a, a story which I think is probably the biggest one of the lot in this blog. But this will lead on, like BBC, you know, not World at One, but PM six o'clock news, news night. It'll be you know big over the weekend. But for me, I mean, I think just comparing it to the other stories that we're talking about tonight, I think we should talk about it because it's going to shape the political context of of British politics and Tory infighting is a big variable if they want to keep power. Obviously, but it's just not a big story compared to Biden on climate change, what's going on in India, and so much more. I think I think where it does. It's very portentous. It, it kind of could have real importance going forward. Is you know, to what extent um, are we going to see a, a breakdown in relations between vote Leave Tories and kind of establishment Tories that came together behind Boris Johnson? Because of course, if that happens, he will he will struggle to he will struggle to a govern and b to win another election. And I don't say that as somebody who thinks Labour are, you know in with a strong chance of winning next time. Uh, but that was the coalition he brought together in December 2019, some really talented campaigners and strategists obviously around Vote Leave, Lee Cain, Dominic Cummings, Matthew Elliott. And so if this gets really bitter and rancorous, that's only bad for number 10. And it's only bad for the Tories if they're seeking re-election.
0: Mm, no, I mean, to respond to a couple of those points, I mean, I, of course, this is not as important as, as, as a COVID crisis or, or, or climate change. But there are some revelations in this. And again, I agree that no one's going to take Dominic Cummings as his word. He's going to have to you know provide the receipts but if he can provide the receipts i think potentially this could do some damage because unlike those text messages to businesses during the covid crisis when boris johnson can say look we're in a pandemic i was trying to get ventilators made even though dyson didn't make any ventilators but he can say at least i was trying to get ventilators made or i was trying to get ppe that's why i gave this contract to my friend you know he's got an excuse there and the public you know contracting stuff is very complex i barely understand it and i'm a political commentator i shouldn't say i mean i I have a reasonable understanding because i try and explain it to you but what i'm saying is it's it's not something that's that immediate whereas i mean trying to intervene in an investigation to protect your girlfriend i think that's a bit more easily understandable so if dominic cummings can provide the receipts i think that could be awkward again obviously the big variable here is do the press want to go to war with the Conservative Party over this, I think, unlikely um, at at this point in time. They did in the 90s because, you know, they were, one, rather bored of John Major and also they were really, really confident having Tony Blair in power because he'd basically won all all the billionaire class over. Will that happen now? Keir Starmer's not quite there Yeah, although he's he's trying, isn't he? Um, The final bit of awkward information from that blog concerns Boris Johnson's Downing Street flat. So this was renovated at a cost of £200,000. And it's alleged that part of that was paid for by Tory donors. There's lots of claims and counterclaims about this um, at this point in time. But on that issue, Dominic Cummings writes, The Prime Minister's DOC, that's Director of Communications, has also made accusations regarding me and the leaks concerning the PM's renovation of his flat. The PM stopped speaking to me about this matter in 2020 as I told him I thought his plans to have donors secretly pay for the renovation were unethical, foolish, possibly illegal, and almost certainly broke the rules on proper disclosure of political donations if conducted in the way he intended. I refused to help him organise these payments. My knowledge about them is therefore limited. I would be happy to tell the Cabinet Secretary or Electoral Commission what I know concerning this matter." Aaron, you think this is the, the really damaging one? I mean, I can see why. If, there was, if, if this was, um, you know, written down in, in black and white that Boris Johnson wanted to secretly have it funded or paid for by donors and Dominic Cummings was saying, no, that's completely unethical and Boris Johnson does it anyway. I mean, that's pretty damaging to his integrity, isn't it?
1: But also, I mean, you've got a former sort of close advisor saying, I think this is illegal. That's a big claim, if, you know, even, even if it's not illegal. The frame there is that former adviser says to prime minister in office, you shouldn't do this. It's probably breaking the law. He does it anyway. He's now saying he's willing to talk to, potentially to the Electoral Commission. And again, look, the Electoral Commission kind of toothless doesn't do much. But this this stuff can it has done in the past led to you know, criminal charges. That's not going to happen here. But when you start talking about legality and, you know, the, the cabinet office, and the Electoral Commission, this isn't just, oh, he said, she said. That's a serious accusation. Like you say, Michael, if he can bring receipts and if there are sort of ancillary witnesses with, you know, testimonies which kind of stack up, then yeah, Boris Johnson has problems.
0: Let's go straight on to our next story. On Thursday... Joe Biden hosted a virtual climate summit that was intended to symbolize the reassertion of American leadership on climate change after four years of Donald Trump. And in words, at least, Biden's intervention was a world away from his predecessor.
4: All of us, all of us, and particularly those of us who represent the world's largest economies, we have to step up. You know, those that do take action and make bold investments in their people and clean energy future will win the good jobs of tomorrow and make their economies more resilient and more competitive. So let's run that race. Win more, win more sustainable future than we have now. Overcome the existential crisis of our times. We know just how critically important that is because scientists tell us that this is the decisive decade. This is the decade we must make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis.
0: That was Joe Biden, obviously sounding very, very different to Donald Trump. He's encouraging a race between the big emitters to reduce emissions, um, which, you know, if we're going to have geopolitical races, that's probably one of the better ones to, to have. Um, on that front, in terms of competing as to who can reduce emissions first, Britain had a decent story to tell. We'll see if they follow through on it. But they have committed um, to reduce emissions by 78% by 2035 levels. That's compared to 1990 levels. Um, However, in his intervention, the Prime Minister's more memorable line from the event was not what the UK would do, but rather what he himself was not. It's vital for all of us uh, uh, to show that this is not all about uh, some expensive, uh, politically correct uh, green act of uh, of, uh, of 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 bunny hugging uh, or, or or however you want to put it. I'm not even with bunny hugging, but I, you you know what I'm driving at, uh, friends and colleagues. This is about growth and jobs, and I think the president was absolutely right uh, to, to stress that. Now, many people on Twitter said that was a gaffe from Boris Johnson. I mean, I'm pretty sure that is exactly the kind of clip Boris Johnson quite likes to go out he's trying to make a point to say when i'm talking about green things i'm not saying you have to consume less or or live like a hippie what i'm saying is let's have growth and green jobs i think there was there was a plan there and he likes people finding him funny let's go to probably uh well definitely a much more significant leader um, than boris johnson when it comes to fighting climate change and that's china's xi Jinping. he used the occasion to reassert some pretty ambitious targets drawn up from beijing China
1: will strive to peak
0: carbon dioxide emissions before
1: 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. China has committed to move from carbon peak to carbon neutrality in a much shorter time span than what might take many developed countries.
0: So the point he's making there, obviously China, because it's developed much later than the Western countries, is not going to have as ambitious reductions by 2030 or 2035 as Britain or America. But he's saying look, we're going to peak in 2030 and then we're going to go from the peak to net zero in 30 years, which would be very ambitious if they managed to pull it off. Um, let's. Uh, he also said they would be phasing down coal consumption in the five years from 2025. So that's a, a more immediate target. Um, obviously, the, the closer the target is, the easier it is to hold a politician to account for it. How these summits and negotiations and COP26 will work is by nationally determined contributions um what this means is that each country basically gets to offer what their commitment will be how much they will reduce their emissions by and by what date compared to um what baseline level i'm going to get you up where we currently stand um with the different countries and regions in the world right now this is from the ft the european union have said they will reduce Um, Their emissions by fifty five percent by twenty thirty. That's compared to the nineteen ninety baseline. The UK, compared to nineteen ninety, will reduce its emissions by seventy eight percent by twenty thirty five. The United States, who compare their levels to two thousand and five, they will halve their emissions by twenty thirty, and Canada who use the same baseline as the US, they'll reduce theirs by 40 to 45% by 2030 and Japan, who compare theirs to 2013 and will reduce their emissions by 46% by 2030. Now, China and India on here, that's even more complicated because this isn't them saying there's going to be a 65% reduction. They are going to have a 65% reduction per unit of GDP. By 2030, so they're basically saying by 2030, each unit of of growth we have, each unit of economic production will be much greener, much efficient than it currently is. India, similar, they will make um, each unit of GDP emit 33 to 35 percent less carbon emissions Um, my apologies that's all quite complicated there's some quite important political reasons as to why they've all chosen different baselines but that's what they've decided to do makes my job slightly harder now to discuss whether these pledges are enough and if they're credible which is probably most important i'm joined by Laurie laybourne langton researcher and co-author of planet on fire a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown how far do these pledges get us to to averting climate catastrophe
5: they they get us much closer. And I think we have to appreciate um, that a lot of progress has been made off the back of these targets having come through around the time of this summit. And it was good that America hosted that summit, particularly in comparison to the previous era, as you were saying. Um, it's pushed countries to sign up to, to more stringent reductions like the UK, for example. Um, there will be detailed analyses, mainly by scientists associated with the UN, that will look at precisely how much this has closed the emissions gap in the jargon between where we are and where we need to get to to keep temperatures down to a certain level. But it certainly takes us a bit closer. Whether it actually delivers is still a very big question and one that I'm sure many scientists will say, you know, this is a good next step, but we're still no nowhere near really closing that emissions gap so we have a shot in ensuring that the temperature rise does not go above 1.5 over the course of the next decade or so.
0: You know, Looking through there, which of those countries are you most impressed by? Who do you think is still lagging lagging behind? Is Boris Johnson to cor- correct to say that we've got the most ambitious target and therefore we're, we're leading the way? Yeah, the,
5: the UK target is very impressive. It would have been almost unimaginable uh, even a few years ago to think that a, cons- a governing Conservative Party with a large majority headed by Boris Johnson would sign up to targets that essentially lead to one of the greatest or demand one of the greatest changes in the economy that we've ever seen in this country. You know, there was a really interesting interview over the course of the week uh, or a clip I saw on Twitter where Julia Hartley Brewer was pointing to an interview on Sky News with Fatima Ibrahim, who's the head of a group called Green New Deal UK where she was being asked by the presenter how much the economy would have to change, and the presenter was very much understanding that there would have to be huge changes to the economy. And Julia Hartley Brewer was saying, hang on a minute. No one told us that this was going to happen. And that's baked into what the Conservatives are signing up to. So I think that's a really significant thing that we have to look at. We also have to admit that some of the big changes that China and India are promising are themselves very big steps compared to the international climate politics that we saw particularly in the last decade, where the huge tensions between countries that were very wealthy and became wealthy because of the burning of fossil fuels over the last 200 to 250 years were very much pitted against those countries who were saying, rightly, we didn't really contribute to this problem. We want to develop like you guys have, but you're telling us that we can't. And that China and India are starting to sign up to more ambitious targets, particularly China with its net zero target. And we're sure that India will deliver one soon um, is a real significant change in the international politics that we're seeing. And then with the US as well, we had, you know, the head of ExxonMobil is the Secretary of State in America not too long ago. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's it's very positive that these changes are happening. But again, they are still not probably the numbers need to be crunched properly, anywhere near the kind of shift. Well, they're not the the kind of shift that we will need to try and minimise the risks of rising temperatures.
0: One way of putting it, you know, maybe they could get us there, but the risk is still really, really high. If you want to avoid the risk of catastrophic climate change, it's going to have to be much more ambitious. Eh?
5: Yeah, and I think anyone who's looking at this and wants to lend a critical eye to to these this summit, the summits that will be happening across this year, there are three kind of tests that people need to be applying. One is around consumption. Um, so are leaders talking in a way in which they recognise that the challenge isn't just swapping all the dirty stuff for clean stuff which has an environmental cost you know we have to emit emissions at least at the moment to make all the clean stuff and we will also damage other parts of the environment in doing so so can 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 the things that we're signing up to the ways we're going to deliver on those targets um ensure that we're not just able to swap the dirty for the clean but also can answer the question of how we do that in a way in which we're expecting countries to adopt a western high consumption lifestyle across the world. And there was a massive question over whether we basically have the environmental budget to continue to push countries or countries to adopt that kind of high environmental impact consumption lifestyle. The second test is equity, so that countries are actually delivering on their targets in a way that involves communities and speaks to the huge global inequalities that we were alluding to earlier. And then the the third and, and really crucial one that cuts across that is power our leaders talking about emissions reductions in the context of policies that will challenge the entrenched power of those interests that benefit from environmental destruction and that's not just fossil fuel interests it's also massive food producers that are cutting down the amazon to to food to feed hungry meat based western diets you know so those are the three tests i think we need to have at the forefront of minds in what is a crucial year for environmental summits
0: When you look at those targets in the different countries involved, are there any of them where you think, look, if you're going to achieve that, you definitely cannot keep this policy that you currently have, that you've made no indication that you're going to drop? I suppose to take Britain as as the obvious example, Mm -hmm. because that's where we are. For them to achieve that 78% target, what would they have to do to make you believe, to be convinced that, yes, they're serious about this, they're going to do that?
5: Not have, you know, basically committed to to... To, to building a coal power plant in, in one part of the country to you know they talk they talk a, a good game about making sure that they contribute to international fairness when it comes to this and the uk has commitments to making sure that it also supports countries around the world um to to phase out its emissions we can't say that we're going to support countries around the world and then at the same time, cut our long-standing commitment to supporting those countries through overseas development assistance. So that's another one that is crucial and has really scuppered the UK's claim to be a leader in convening things internationally this year, um, you know, through this UN climate conference that we do, we're doing at the end of the year. And then the third one I just just throw out there is that we have to have proper rules that ensure that banks aren't continuing to invest in fossil fuels. They cannot be voluntary Agreements. We've had global banks, including ones based in the UK, investing trillions of dollars into um, fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement in 2015 was signed. And this government isn't serious unless it actually is developing and implementing strong enforceable rules that stop those companies from, from behaving in that way.
0: Laurie labon Langton, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We'll let you go answer your door. Um, and I do recommend <laughs> our, our audience to go check out your book. Good
5: cheers, evening, Michael, Bye-bye.
0: Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. How are you feeling about climate change? You know, we're all about feelings on this show. Are you feeling more positive than you have ever been? I mean, definitely yeah. the discourse has changed on it, hasn't it?
1: I listened to Joe Biden's speech, which, um, I mean, it wasn't delivered perfectly because, you know, he's, he's not the best with the teleprompter. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean... He's he's an older guy. He's 78, 79. It's tough. Uh, You know, he's not at the top of his game. Ten years ago, he was obviously a much better public speaker. Um, But the words, he was actually saying the substance of the speech, which of course is what matters, was really impressive, I thought. And uh, if you you listen to that, which I would implore people to listen to, I think they played it on The World at One. Quite a big excerpt of it yesterday. So listen to that on BBC Sounds. And I thought, you know what? I am on the Malarkey Express. (laughs) I am on the Biden Malarkey freight train direct decarbonisation by 2050. It was really, really impressive. Uh, but I, I think underneath it all was the fact that China is looking to decarbonize just 10 years after the US. I mean, if that happens, it's such an, an astonishing achievement. Just absolutely astonishing. I think the big the big thing is, and people say, oh, you know, technological fix. The, the reality is this won't happen if certain technologies aren't online. Can we produce steel, concrete, glass, without creating massive CO2 emissions. If, if, there are t- if there are technologies that can do that before 2050, that, you know, it's, these aren't just commitments. But if for whatever reason these technologies don't come online, it's going to be very, very hard to do. You'd apply that also to potentially sell your agriculture, you know, meat without animals. There's a few other things too, but I think those are the big ones. Built environment, of course aviation, but aviation is only 3% of global CO2 emissions. The built environment, and I think food, if we can decarbonize those, I think, I think we can be optimistic. And the reality is as well michael c o two emissions per head in Europe, Britain, North America are already below their peak levels now, some people will say, well, that doesn't include you know aviation uh and, and traveling abroad. well okay, fine, we should be flying less, but regardless that's still that's still good, or the fact that you know they're they're consuming manufactured goods. From elsewhere, which are produced generally in China, which is why China wanted that stipulation of you know per unit of GDP. That's also accurate, but it's it's pretty clear I think that CO2 emission per person isn't going up in the global north. If you look at the US, you look at the EU, you look at UK. In the, in in the UK again under a Tory government. of all UK solar capacity has been installed since 2010. Now, that's not because the Tories are wonderful. Mostly that's off the back of new labour policy and Gordon Brown subsidies. But it's because of the falling price of of solar generation. And at some point in this decade, by the mid-2020s, electric cars on price performance are better than petrol. Uh, You know, wind is cheaper than most fossil fuels for most of the planet. So, I think you know the technology's driving a lot of it. You know the question is how quickly can we get things done? to what extent is there political will and Until the last year, I would have said there isn't a the political will. you know we're going warp speed to hell, right four degrees plus. I'm a little bit less sure of that you know i think I think it's very possible we could decarbonize by twenty sixty and we actually have a huge amount of money invested into sequestering c o two from the atmosphere, you know. Um, building, you know, these wild habitats which we're gonna have to have across the planet to enhance biodiversity and so on. So it's not guaranteed, it's not priced in, but that we are seeing action now, I think partly because of COVID, right? I think people, you know, policymakers and politicians know the connections between biodiversity loss uh and you know, zoonotic spillover like COVID-19. They don't want that to keep on happening. That was very much a result of, you know, that's a climate change issue leading to what has been the biggest pandemic since 1919. I think that's kind of kickstarted something, but it's it's been going for a couple of years now. I think it's it's hugely positive news. I I just don't think we should sit back on our on our backsides or rest on our laurels proverbially. Um I think we need to push forward because ultimately, you know, can't you can't expect politicians to to keep to these ambitions. But like Laurie said, you know, the idea that Boris Johnson of all people would be leading on this five years ago would have been impossible
0: to imagine. There's a great article by Adam Tooze in the New Statesman, I recommend sort of warning against believing all of Biden's rhetoric. He's saying that actually when you tot up the numbers, it's, it's not as impressive as it, as it might seem. Um, incredibly interesting. But yeah, m- we're moving in the right direction. Are we moving in that direction fast enough? That's the issue, isn't it? As ever, what really makes the show possible is our regular donors. Thank you so much. If you are already one, if not, please do go to NovaraMedia.com support. Our final story is much lighter than the other stories we've covered tonight. The Free Speech Union was set up by Toby Young to defend people expressing controversial views from professional or reputational damage. They've been critiqued as an outfit only interested in defending people's right to be racist or homophobic. However, a decision by the International Olympic Committee to ban athletes from taking the knee in solidarity with Black Lives Matter gave the organisation an opportunity to show they weren't just rank opportunists looking to only defend bigotry. So would the Free Speech Union defend the right to express a political opinion they didn't agree with? We found out when their Deputy Director, Emma Webb, spoke to Talk Radio.
6: The decision by uh, the um, International Olympic Committee to ban this is consistent, as you mentioned already with rule fifty. Um and so I think it's the right decision. And actually g- groups like the Football Association should probably follow suit mm. um, because, as you've pointed out, this is a highly politicized organization, and it's not exactly a tenable position to suggest that, this is simply a gesture of anti-racism when it's so closely associated with what is obviously a far-left political movement
5: yeah absolutely and i I, which again it's just this goes over old ground i guess emma but i mean it staggers me the free pass some of these people have been given into the highest of our governments and institutions around the world (laughs) perhaps because of the name of the organization that you know people start to discombobulate and think well i better respond to that or i you know i I better be open to the ideas of these people because you know after all called Black Lives Matter. I mean, that sounds like something very worthy that we should all be signed up to.
6: Yeah, it's excellent branding because... Superb, isn't it? I mean, if you work in as- PR,
5: it doesn't get any better than that, really.
6: Exactly. And, I, I and you know, as you say, we've been over this ground time and time again because no one's going to disagree with the fact that Black Lives Matter. And anybody who cares about equality or comes from a sort of civil rights Perspective, Martin Luther King um, style uh, approach to these sorts of things, um, wouldn't find anything objectionable in that. But it isn't just purely about um, racism.
0: You couldn't make it up. They're called the Free Speech Union. They say, look, we defend people's right to say controversial things, even if it's offensive, even if it's bigoted. Now, someone wants to kneel down to speak out against racism by cops against black people and suddenly no 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 not only at the ioc the international olympic committee right to ban taking the knee the fa should do it too football players should be banned from taking the knee at the start of at the start of matches i mean these people are ridiculous free speech
1: for people i agree with i mean that's not how it works it's like you know um innocent until proven guilty if i think you're innocent I mean, the whole point of the rule of law is that it's a universalizable category. You can't just think the law applies to the people that you like. You can't just have a certain moral code to people you already agree with, right? <laughs> Christ, I mean, these are meant to be adults, Michael. This free speech union's been indulged left, right, and centre by a pathetic, a scurrilous media. When, like you said, there's just these obvious and absurd inconsistencies in what they say. You know, I think Michael, actually, you know, Rosa Luxemburg said the best: free sp- freedom is freedom to disagree. You know, freedom only exists in a society where there are people that are free to dissent with what you're with what you're saying. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is when you say you, you it literally could be further from the truth. This person is defending freedom of speech. I mean, I, there's a very millennial literally in that. It couldn't be further from the truth. They are not defending free speech. They're just defending people that they agree with.
0: Almost as striking as what she was saying was how easy a ride she got from the radio host. Who wasn't saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Wait a minute, wait a minute! You're from the Free Speech Union. I thought you were coming on here to argue that this should be allowed, and it was an affront that the IOC were banning taking the knee." Ian Collins just like, "Yeah, yeah I know. Black Lives Matter are fairly controversial, aren't they?" Um, as I say, he doesn't appear to push her back um, at all on this contradiction. Um, but regardless, she does offer one defence of the position, one defence of the position that people shouldn't be able to take the knee at the Olympics.
6: When the uh, Olympic Committee, International Olympic Committee reviewed this rule and whether or not it should be applied to taking the knee, they took a a sort of survey of of, um, the sports people taking part and found that the majority of people were supportive of the decision to uphold the rule and would have been supportive of a ban of it. So I think there's, there's an increasing consensus within sport that taking the knee is divisive um and doesn't really have very much to do with actually mm. kicking racism out of sport
0: so there's just saying it's right that it's banned because it's unpopular the whole point of believing in free speech is that your ability to say something shouldn't be based on whether the idea is popular right that that's the whole point the whole ideology behind free speech being you know an important thing is that you can challenge um, dominant ideologies, that you can challenge what people consider to be common sense, and that's how you make progress, right? That, that that That's, I mean, supposed to be the whole point, right? And then she's saying, oh, well, if the majority are against it, we, you shouldn't be able to say it. Now, this isn't just, you know, the traditional JS Mill liberal idea of free speech I'm drawing from, because I'm also drawing here from their own website. So in the Statement of Values of the Free Speech Union, they write... The free speech union believes that if society doesn't uphold the right to express controversial, eccentric, heretical, provocative, or unwelcome opinions, then it doesn't uphold free speech. But then you've got their deputy director who goes on talk radio and says, oh, no, look, these ideas were unpopular. The majority of people were happy with them being banned. Therefore, we should ban them. She should read the statement of values of the own organisation that she's presumably employed by. The statement of values is is not the only thing. On their website if you go to the front page it also talks about what the free speech union will do if you are well i mean they talk about the woke mob but if you are Um, stopped from expressing your legal right to free speech. Um, So this is from the front page of their website. Free speech is the bedrock on which all our other freedoms rest, yet it is currently in greater peril than at any time since the Second World War. The Free Speech Union is a non-partisan mass membership public interest body that stands up for the speech rights of its members, and this is the important bit. If you think there's a risk you'll be penalised for exercising your right to free speech, whether it's in the workplace or the public, square you need the protection of the free speech union so they're saying look you should join you should join this union if someone is trying to um, make you suffer or if someone's trying to punish you in your workplace for expressing your legal right to free speech so now you might think well the free speech union they don't want people to be able to they think it's fine to have a rule against taking the knee or whatever incoherent anyway but they could say if they're living up to their, their website ah, but what we'll do is, you know, they shouldn't be punished if they do. You know, maybe we can scorn them or frown upon them, but they shouldn't be punished for expressing their legal right. That's what their website says. Let's see what their deputy director says should happen um, to athletes who find themselves in trouble if they take the knee at this year's Tokyo Olympics. Final point
5: on, on Tokyo, You, I, I alluded to it in, in the introduction, Emma. You, you kind of already know that one person at least is going to break this rule.
6: Yeah, so they're they're consulting with lawyers at the moment on uh, what the proportional measures would be to take. But they, I think, they did confirm that um, players would be punished if they were to uh, make one of these uh, demonstrations or gestures of protest on the podium or or in the field.
0: <laughs> she, she thinks they should now be punished. We take a knee at the Tokyo Olympics. Ow. Right. I mean, you could have a situation where you've got I mean, they're not going to are they, because they'd be fucking idiots, too. But you could easily have someone who is an athlete joins the free speech union because they want to organise. They want this this union to organise so that they can express their free speech in the workplace. And then you've got their deputy director saying, no, it's correct for them to get fired. It's correct for them to be thrown out of athletics because they've expressed their political opinion.
1: I mean, the whole thing's just absurd. You know, this isn't... And also, this isn't new. You know, who is... What was this lady's name again, Michael? She's called you know, Emma Webb. Emma Webb. Okay, Emma. Um, I've never met her. I'm not going to judge her character. But on the basis of that, she doesn't seem particularly on top of issues of free speech and civil liberties. Think about this. Tommy Smith, 1968. You have the famous Black Power salute at the, ni- you know, the 1968 Olympics. Does she think that that was bad? That that was actually egregious, that he should have been punished for that? In 1968, when you've got, you know, racial segregation, um, uh, anti-miscegenation, so you know, black people and white people couldn't get married in certain states in the U.S. until the mid-1960s. D- does she think he was in the wrong to do that to highlight the black civil rights struggle in the United States? I presume not. I presume she would say, no, things are better. Therefore, actually, protest was legitimate then, but not now. I mean, and, and that seems so arbitrary. And by the way, that, like you say, Michael, that wasn't popular back then more than fifty years ago. Protest generally isn't popular. The, the idea that we'll only defend the, the free speech of people who say mainstream things, but you're not going to be very busy, are you? I mean, we saw this earlier as well the Jewish Chronicle. They said, how can you call somebody far right if they've got mainstream views? Well, you know, it was mainstream to believe in slavery 200 years ago. It was mainstream to think women shouldn't have the vote at the start of the 20th century. You know, a couple of thousand years ago, it was mainstream to think that cannibalism's okay. You know, <laughs> people move on because, and what's the mechanism for that? You have dissenting views. People engage with those, often not positively, but uh, eventually there's some change. They use those to reflect on their own behavior, and then they say, actually, this is right. This is the correct way of doing things. And that's, that's the that's the social argument. It's a social good to have freedom of speech, even if you don't necessarily agree with this argument or that argument, because as a society, it challenges us, and we can move from a position of ignorance to one of you know illumination, enlightenment. I don't think she even knows what the hell she's talking about, Michael. I think this lady just wants an excuse to to bash the left and free speech and, and freedom of expression is not a left. It shouldn't be a left right thing. You know, there are, there are many people on the right who genuinely believe in it. And there are many people on the left who genuinely believe in it, but it's become this like weird cultural cudgel. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. You know, Voltaire has talked about it. You know, Rosa Luxemburg's talked about it. Jess Mill talked about it. You're looking at really disparate ideological traditions. said so freedom of speech is really important. Uh, anyway, Maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe, maybe, Michael, maybe, just maybe, the Free Speech Union aren't good faith actors. Have you thought about that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's the conclusion on which we should end the show. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats and comments tonight. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to slash support.